Welcome back to the Arm Viewpoints podcast. We have a great episode lined up for you today. We have two guests that can shed some serious light on the complex world of semiconductor design. And with me today is Scott White, CEO of Pragmatic Semiconductor, and James Myers, Distinguished Engineer at Arm. We'll talk about Arm's partnership with Pragmatic and their collaboration in designing and manufacturing flexible chips to solve existing problems and create opportunities for new use cases in an episode we're calling Beyond Silicon, The Future of Flexible Chips. Perhaps we can start with you, Scott. Why don't you kick us off by telling us a bit more about Pragmatic? So at Pragmatic, we focus on making extremely low-cost, flexible electronics. So we've developed an entirely new semiconductor manufacturing process that is dramatically lower cost than conventional silicon fabrication. And in doing so, we end up with an, an end product that doesn't involve silicon, so it isn't the same rigid wafers we're used to coming out of a silicon fab, but instead is thin, flexible plastic. And that brings us nicely to Pragmatic's involvement with ARM, and we're joined by distinguished engineer James Myers. So ARM and Pragmatic have worked closely for a number of years on researching, designing, and manufacturing flexible chips that address challenges faced by traditional silicon. Why don't you begin by explaining what flexible chips are? So flexible chips are non-silicon chips. They're composed of transistors and wires, just like silicon chips, but with alternative manufacturing from Pragmatic. The chips you build out of those components look somewhat like the silicon chips from the 1980s. There are tens of thousands of transistors rather than tens of billions that, that are in our high-end silicon chips today. They run at somewhat more modest frequencies. The power consumption per operation hasn't benefited from 50 years of Moore's law, and, and so that's a trade-off there. But they can be flexed for Physically, they can be integrated into uh, transparent things. As Scott mentioned, the form factor is very different and they have the opportunity to really be designed bespoke to a particular application. So in that context, how did the partnership between Pragmatic and ARM come about? Great story there. So ARM's CTO at the time, Mike Muller, uh, was, uh, this came up on his radar. I think maybe Scott uh, reached out and got in touch with him. He then delegated, as all good CTOs do, to, to me, go and, go and look at the stuff, see what's there, is there something for us? And I think I first talked to Scott in 2013. So in, in 2013, we got together. Scott showed me a, a, a wafer of discrete transistors uh, and a, a prototype circuit, which was a, a rectifier, which was driving an LED uh, for, with some RF energy. So it's a single transistor circuit, which was interesting, but I, I couldn't quite scale that in my head to tens of thousands of transistors yet. Six months or nine months later, Scott came back, and, and at that point they had a 10 transistor circuit, I think, Scott, an, an oscillator, an analog oscillator that could blink an LED. And from 10 transistors working together in a circuit, I could I could extrapolate that up to sort of towards 10,000, which we, we thought we needed as a minimum bar to do a computationally interesting design in this sort of technology. So from there, I, I, I managed to uh, get uh, two of the ARM's original founders, actually, who, who were involved in the very first uh, few ARM chips in the 80s, to get on board and to, to build a research program around that. And just to complement that from our side, as James said, back in 2013, 2014, we were very much at the early stages of a journey similar to where silicon was when the silicon transistor was first invented so it was baby steps initially but it's showing that we could actually make something work and then the nice thing is we have then a fairly well-trodden path that silicon's gone through but but we can perhaps move through that path much quicker learning from the experience of the silicon industry and so just to build on what james was saying about 
the key differences between silicon and flexible chips is in in most um, applications we're looking at a different set of use cases from silicon this is not about doing a better box of electronics this is about how you extend electronics into areas where we wouldn't normally consider putting it because you have that dramatic difference in cost and form factor and so you can embed it invisibly in in things that you wouldn't normally think of as being an electronic device. That's exciting. And I, I wonder about some of the projects that come out of that. I understand there's been two big projects that Pragmatic and ARM have collaborated on, the plastic arm chip and the plastic armpit projects. Are, are you able to explain a bit more about those? So uh, the plastic arm is where we got started. We had this vision. Okay, so uh, we have 10 transistors. Can we pull together tens of thousands of transistors and make a, an arm processor? When we first started that, we had lots of design technology, optimization efforts to really understand the, the limits on both sides. You know, our, our processor was too big and we had to cut down our uh, understandings of systems and we had to modify the processor a bit, although in the end we were able to make it um, architecture compliant, you know, it's it's not an off-the-shelf uh, IP product that we had ready. Uh, and I, I remember the first time we simulated a processor uh, implementation, it was sort of the size of an, an A4 piece of paper, right? Uh, so, you know, clearly, clearly not viable. And over the last eight years, you know, we're down below a square centimeter now in our, in our recent publication on that, on that project. So that's, that's amazing. That's plastic arm. Uh, and the plastic armpit sort of evolved from that. Uh, there's a cautionary tale here about temporary project names uh, where that one just stuck and, and can never be undone. But yeah, the plastic armpit built on that to say, well, okay, the CPU is still a square centimeter. If we know the application and if we want to you know, really automate uh, a hardened design that just tackles that one thing and is more, even more optimal um, and even lower cost um, and overcome some of the, the technology limitations versus you know, silicon uh, efficiency per op and so on, then how do we do that? How do we transform an armpit sniffing machine learning classifier using you know high level Python into a thousand gate flexible circuit? Yeah, and just to add to that, I think the the interesting things from pragmatic side about both those products is firstly it's been useful from our perspective to uh, have something that pushes the boundaries of our technology. Uh, and makes it move forward in terms of complexity and performance faster than it would in some of the more commercial applications that we're deploying volume product into. And at the same time, it's helped mature the foundry model of working with a designer who is separate from our manufacturing side of things, similar to the way the silicon industry has evolved into fabulous designers with foundries that do the manufacturing. So it would seem like the, the partnership that you have and the technology that underpins it has the potential for many different use cases that can redefine a lot of products and industries. But where do you see it having the biggest impact? Are, are you able to share some examples of where you see it being deployed or any other projects you've worked on? Sure. So the initial near-term focus is around areas related to radio frequency identification. So RFID is already an extremely high volume market. It's about 20 billion RFID tags a year being used for tracking items to improve inventory control and things like that. But with our technology, because it changes that cost point by an order of magnitude, you can suddenly extend those same use cases to a much broader range of products where it otherwise wouldn't make sense. That Although it's exciting just by itself, and there's a huge opportunity for hundreds of billions to trillions of items just within that, that one application of RFID, what's even more interesting is when you start adding sensing and computation into the mix. 
because then you not just have the ability to track those items, but you can say something about the environment that they're in and potentially do some direct analysis of that within the device, within the packaging to, to change something about how it interacts with that environment. So that's usually the starting point for a lot of the things we're looking at. That crosses over areas like food and beverages, where being able to monitor supply chain integrity, freshness of food and so forth within that supply chain, reducing food waste by having a better understanding of how long it's been in different environments within the supply chain, how long it can really last rather than having a very conservative use-by date, for example. These are all things that we see as being very exciting applications, not just in terms of the commercial potential, but also in terms of the benefit to the environment and the economy. Uh, you can also translate those into things like healthcare, where, again, there are some very simple use cases, as we're working on with the NHS around pathology testing, where just being able to track the tests in a number of other areas, if you can add that sensing and the intelligence of the computation around it, then you can start to do much more interesting things, like having a smart bandage that, that wanted to that monitors your wound as it's healing or that uh, is monitoring your ECG and heart rate in order to detect things like atrial fibrillation. Yeah, I'm like, like Scott, um, very interested in new applications of this technology, not rather than displacing things that silicon can already achieve. But in particular, I'm really excited about contributing to the UN's uh, development goals, the SDGs, whether it's by democratized and affordable healthcare, like wearable health patches, uh, that Scott mentioned that maybe you can just crinkle up and throw away after you've used them, uh, reducing food waste to reduce hunger or smart packaging to improve recycling and uh, optimize resource use and reduce uh, pollution. Really passionate about all of those kind of applications enabled by this kind of technology. And that's very much the same at Pragmatic. In fact, the examples James described cross over very strongly into things we're directly working on with customers and the UK government and, and other uh, institutions around the world. So, for example, we had a, a project uh, awarded by the UK government a couple of months ago around enabling better recycling and reuse of plastic packaging by using these unique IDs to be able to identify them at the point of disposal. And as well as sorting the waste better, you can also provide better consumer incentives for the recycling because it can recognise that somebody has you know, correctly disposed of a product in a way that it can be recycled or reused effectively. But perhaps one, one interesting thing to, to build off that is, James mentioned, the potential here often is around ubiquitous use of these components, which by definition means there's going to be lots of these things happening, trillions of items a year. And so the sustainability of the product itself and the manufacturing processes is also key in what we've been focusing on. So one thing that we've been we've been quite pleased about, we, we can't claim credit sort of 10 years ago when we started developing the technology of, of aiming for this, but a natural result of the fact that our processes are much simpler, much more efficient, much lower cost materials than conventional silicon fabs is they're also much more environmentally friendly. So on a like-for-like -like basis, we have something like 100 times lower electricity consumption, 100 times lower water consumption per circuit, and more like 1,000 times lower carbon footprint. So uh, that's, that's sort of where we are already are today, and we have some interesting innovations in how we can improve that even further to eliminate certain materials within the stack or certain processes within the manufacturing to actually drive it towards being a net-zero carbon-neutral manufacturing process for semiconductor devices. So we're really excited about that. We signed up to programs like Race to Zero, for example, with a view that even as we scale our manufacturing to trillions of items within the next decade, getting that to a point of being carbon neutral.
So I'm really interested these days in the embodied carbon in electronics, whether it's flexible electronics, pragmatic, or whether that's silica and unconventional electronics that may end up in e-waste streams. Very interesting, very complicated set of supply chain analyses needed there. And of course, the parts of our ecosystem are doing a lot to get on top of that, to understand it, to start publishing data. But I I think more needs to be done especially as we move to a circular economy. Some of the things we've touched on here for circular plastics, Scott was mentioning, recycling packages by tracking them and incentivizing uh, behavior change. But I think that needs to move to a lot of different industries beyond just packaging. Electronics themselves, our products, they, they can uh, be added to waste streams, as, as, as some refer to them, but other kinds of products to manage how they flow, how they are reused, how they are recovered, who, who pays for that and who is incentivized by that. And um, so there's, there's, there's lots of great stuff uh, being done with um, conventional electronics uh, towards that, although you, we do need to make sure that it is, it is net positive in, in all cases where we try that. But having more options where lower embodied carbon devices can be manufactured and can be designed and, and can be envisioned, I think really helps the sort of spectrum of circular economy solutions um, as, as we move forward. I think it's a really important set of problems to, to try and address across all markets and all technologies, whether flexible or silicon. I'm intrigued by this idea of the circular economy. Maybe you could just talk just a little bit more about what that is and what the impact of that's going to be. Sure. So the circular economy is this idea of rather than a linear economy where we extract material, we make it into something, we use it, we waste it, we landfill it. We plan it such that the materials we extract end up looping around they're mined, they're manufactured, they're used, they're re- repaired first, that's one loop, they're reused, that's another loop, and then they're recycled. And if you can imagine this infinite loop with no loss at the bottom, ideally, every kilogram of every material we, we mine, the the world, you know, the, our human economy is uh, irreversibly enriched by that. Clearly, that's a big challenge. That's a huge mindset change. And technology can play a big part there if we're careful. And the the World Economic Forum has has done some great white papers on circular economy approaches to a number of industries. In particular, there's one on uh, plastic packaging and there's one on consumer electronics as well. And the themes within them are, are the same you know, circle as a circle, right? But the, the cost sensitivity and the, uh, the lifetime of each kind of product is so different that the actual solutions and the actual, the ways you'll bring technology to bear on each of those is quite different. But they have every single buzzword that our industry is interested in. There's blockchain, there's robotics, there's computer vision, there's AI, there's, you know, uh, cryptography, there's energy efficiency, material forecasting and trading and analytics and all of that is encased in this this problem so that there there are technology pieces everywhere there and all of arms technologies can have a role to play in different bits of those the really interesting one that comes from this work is really bringing the floor down to some of those and really as, as scott was saying you know enabling uh, lower carbon electronics to be embedded in in the, sm- the smallest and the cheapest perhaps of, of of things because all of our things need to be circular not just the highest uh, uh, cost ones I think that's exactly right. That's the the general theme we focus on is that often these kinds of concepts around whether it's circular economy or anything else, it can be proven in high value products relatively easily. But it's when you try and extend it to the vast number of things that we uh, interact with or consume on a daily basis and how you actually make that viable economically 
and actually viable in terms of the sustainability of what you're adding into the solution in order to help everything else be circular. So that's that's sort of the bit that really interests us. If you look at if you look at conventional semiconductor manufacturing, for example, it's perhaps not widely known, but the the carbon footprint of semiconductor manufacturing is actually higher than automotive now, which is sort of counterintuitive to what you'd imagine. But it's basically because of the extended use of, of electronics in pretty much everything we do in life, combined with the increasing complexity of the processes to, to make them keep up with the vast range of functions we want them to do, has just added to that carbon footprint. And so you know, we're obviously not going to go backwards on that front. You know, people will still want that, and but it's a case of how do we use that efficiently and how in areas where you can do things in a simpler way, do we do we actually make that happen in a way that uh, delivers what we need in a much more efficient way that, that can create this circularity and sustainability? Yeah, and I think you highlight something really interesting there. As you bring this vision to life, I'm sure you must have encountered many challenges compared with traditional strategies for chip design. Can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the differences and limitations between designing flexible chips and uh, silicon chips? Sure. So, I mean, I can set the scene and then James can probably expand on the design challenges, but just from the the capabilities of the technology, I mean, James already mentioned the, the fact that we started, you know, just a few years ago with one transistor and then 10 transistors. And even now we're, you know, we're sort of in the tens of thousands of transistors, which is, it's a lot better, but it's, it's kind of where the silicon industry was, say, back in the 1980s. Now, you could actually do quite a lot in the 1980s. It drove the early PC revolution and we could fly manned missions to the moon on a flight controller with just a, a few thousand transistors in it. So there is a lot they can do, but a lot of it requires almost rethinking how we used to approach electronics 30 or 40 years ago, rather than building off what we've got used to with silicon, where you can you know, use billions of transistors. And, and most modern silicon design tends to be focused much more on how do you add functionality? Uh, how do you make it more complex, more functional, more, more exciting in that way? A lot of what we're doing is focused in the opposite direction. How do you create simplicity? How do you take away functions that aren't needed? How do you just get it back to the bare minimum of what do you need to actually make this application work and effective? And then that really drives it towards something that is deployable uh, at extremely high volume and extremely low cost. The last thing we wanted when we started this program was to go all the way back to design methods from the 1980s. Those are best left in the past. We will not be doing anything manual. We can do things better with the technology we have available to us, the methodology we have available to us, the tools we have available to us, than, than things were done in the 80s. But it's, there's a bit of effort involved to, to rescope and re-educate the tools and make the most of them for this kind of design. I think I'd just build off that, that it's the... For us, it's always a balancing act between how much do you reuse what is currently being done and how much do you try and intentionally do things differently. From my perspective, and this is the case for every sort of smaller company and probably most bigger ones as well, it's about where do you focus your effort on innovating and creating new things and how do you leverage as much of uh, the giants that have gone before you in order to make things effective. So it's clear that you've done a lot together. And maybe you can talk a little bit about what happens next with the ARM Pragmatic Partnership and maybe talk about some of the initiatives underway now. So there's probably a, a range of different things we're looking at. I think we're generally less interested in just continuing to push 
for additional complexity. So the, the Cortex-M was a sort of key objective there to show that something of that level of complexity can be achieved. But now it's more about how do you tailor that kind of functionality and focus it on specific applications? And what is the entire design ecosystem you need to have in place to allow that to happen effectively? The, the bit that we see as very exciting is the ability to do hardware optimization uh, of our kinds of circuits for individual applications and to be able to do that very quickly, very easily and very low cost. There is no set of uh, application benchmarks for, for this kind of flexible electronics. You know, we're, we're blazing a new path here. And so we end up working with partners that have particular expertise in deodorant for the armpit project that can give us the, the use cases and tell us what the constraints are and maybe mix up a, a synthetic armpit smell for our, our sensor partner. And in, in other domains, we're doing more of this now. You know, we're working with a healthcare expert to understand what do you need from a heart monitor uh, in this sort of um, flexible patch in other places. What, what does a, a battery company or a, a battery chemist need from a, a battery sensor that wraps around the, the cell perhaps? And c- what can we do with that if we talk to a, an automotive uh, company, you know, an EV manufacturer? So all, all of these different applications, we need to learn a little bit about each to then come back and say, okay, so here is the, the space we're in and this is the bit that maps to the most of them and these are the configurability parameters and, and so on. So we're, we're, we're off at the periphery trying to discover enough to come back to the core and say, ah, that's it. That's the IP or the, the service offering. That's exciting. And, and it gets me to our last wrap-up question and asking you both to take out your crystal balls and tell me where you see the technology being deployed in the next five to 10 years. And maybe, James, you want to kick us off. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a researcher and a bit of a blue sky nerd so my five to ten maybe more like 10 to 15 but i i really want to see our plastic armpit technology deployed in food for reducing waste you know food freshness is is what i was really excited about that's really why i i uh, jumped on that project you know all the components are the same but it, it just needs that that retraining for that uh, particular application and you know each each kind of food so proven it but it, it needs you know uh people to, to to embrace and try it out and, and adopt so I'm hope I'm hopeful that that sort of thing will be uh, used widely in food in five to ten years beyond that I'm really excited I want to see uh, it used in in all kinds of um, sustainable uh, development goal objectives uh, beyond just hunger you know healthcare education I'd really like to see it in circular economy uh, where where uh, other kinds of electronics can't help or can't fit and Beyond that, even further, I want to get I want to get to biodegradable compute. I think it's more than ten years, but there are tentative material studies saying that there are potentially ways uh, to build wires and transistors in, in, and on substrates as well. You know, will will biodegrade, so they could be used then for uh, the more biological uh, half of the circular economy rather than, than the technical half. So you compost compost the thing down, including the the, the compute. I think that would be amazing. I do think that's more than 10 years off, but I'm, I'm very excited about that too. And, and I think from my perspective, actually, it's, um, it, it's very similar. So I won't, uh, I won't just repeat it, but uh, I think that's one of the reasons we, uh, we've actually worked very well together as, as organizations and as teams is that, that we have a very similar vision for the types of things that, that we want to enable with our technology around sector economy, ubiquitous healthcare, and you know, reduction of food waste and the impact that can have on on you know global poverty you know food poverty and so forth so i think you know those are the general trends we're focused on from an application perspective and i guess the other the other piece which 
builds a little bit onto the the circular economy and, and carbon footprint is, is as I said before, this aspiration to actually evolve the manufacturing process even further to uh, to make it even more efficient. Um, so, for example, um, we've actually shown we can eliminate the plastic substrate within our chips. You know, plastic's a bit of a dirty word these days. It turns out that the plastic we're using in our chip is such a small percentage that it's it's pretty inconsequential relative to the plastic packaging it's going onto. And if we can improve the recycling of that, it it has huge leverage. But actually, we can improve it even further by by being able to eliminate you know, certain things within our process or certain material layers and make that even more. Uh, efficient and environmentally friendly but i think the you know the high level that i would put within the next five to ten years from a from a tangible perspective other than those specific application areas is just around the the ubiquity of deployment of the technology so we've set ourselves a goal of being in a minimum of a trillion items within the next decade Um, and actually our our operational plan is is somewhat in excess of that um, you put that into context, you know, the last couple of years, I think, is the first time the silicon industry has manufactured a trillion devices within a year. So, you know, that's after 50 years, we're aiming to get to that point with our technology, you know, within 10. Uh, but then I think the other piece that I think is I'm really excited about the more we explore it is the manufacturing model that underpins that being this distributed localized production um, that avoids uh, very concentrated supply chains avoids shipping stuff unnecessarily around the world, uh, and so within that same timescale, we expect to have about a hundred of our fabs deployed in various countries. You know, a lot of them integrated within to our larger customers' uh, production facilities uh, in order to actually deliver those those trillions of circuits. Trillions. I'm just trying to get my head around that, uh, but I really like the vision you've outlined. And the fact that it seems very achievable. I'm really looking forward to where this is going to take us in the next decade. And I'm sure our listeners will be watching these developments closely as well. And if you haven't already, do check out the latest edition of Nature to read more about the plastic arm project between ARM and Pragmatic. That wraps up this episode, and we look forward to offering further technology insights in the next episode of ARM Viewpoints. Thanks for listening today.